I invite you to join me in the spirit of prayer. Spirit of life-giving love and love-giving life, God of so many surprises, some of little consequence, some of great consequence, some that make us laugh and others that challenge us greatly. We are gathered together in the midst of all that is to take a moment out to reflect within so that we might better see that which is without, so that we might see that through whatever challenges we are in the midst of, we continue to be surrounded by beauty, the beauty of life, the beauty of being. May we be healed in our struggles by that beauty. May we be filled up and blessed by that beauty, which we are a part of, so that we might not only be healed, but that we become the healers, continuing to spread that which is good, that which is wholesome, that which is connecting in the world around us. Let us hold this moment together in quiet. Amen. Our ancient reading is from the book of James in the Christian scripture. Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, that one is like a person who looks intently at their natural face in a mirror. For that person looks at themselves and goes away, and at once forgets that they were there. Our modern reading is from Native American musician, philosopher, and recipient of the National Medal of Freedom, High Eagle. The mere possession of a vision is not the same as living it, nor can we encourage others with it if we do not ourselves understand and follow its truths. The pattern of the great spirit is over, all, over us all, but if we follow our own spirits from within, our pattern becomes clearer. For centuries, others have sought their visions, they prepare themselves so that if the Creator desires them to know their life's purpose, then a vision would be revealed. To be blessed with visions is not enough. We must live them. So, where was I? Oh, yes. Several years ago, I was serving in our congregation, our Unitarian Universalist congregation up in Fitchburg, Massachusetts, and one morning I found myself in the kitchen with a very long-time member named Porter Dickinson. I was a lot younger then and felt a great respect for Porter's age-tested wisdom. He was nearly, he was in his early 70s and I was in my early 40s. And now that I'm nearing the mid-60s, 70 doesn't seem quite so daunting or monumental as it did then. But still, I like Porter just the same. 
He was a retired businessman, had a strong local accent, and was a New England Yankee through and through. He was quite sharp in his appearance, quick and sharp in his wit. He had a great sense of humor, a little bit of a temper, and was very knowledgeable about a whole lot of things, in particularly knowledgeable about real estate and finance. I held Porter in high esteem and would have respected his wisdom no matter how much older or younger than I he could have been. Anyway, there we were in the kitchen of First Parish Church talking about an urgent repair project on the 170-year-old building. It was a project that had needed some serious attention for a while. Little to no progress had been made on it by our facilities committee or its chair, and Porter was expressing a bit of frustration and impatience. I said that our facilities chair had recognized the problem and intended to address it, but that he just hadn't quite gotten to it yet. Porter commented on how long his response was in the coming. He also mentioned how alarmingly typical he found that slow response to be of our, of our facilities chair. I said as calmly as I could, he meant to have it done by now, Porter. I guess we'll just have to be patient. And then I looked at Porter and said, he means well. He means well. And Porter instantly turned red-faced. He was very uh, easy to read when he got excited, which wasn't a terribly rare thing. There must have been a good dose of Irish in his wasp lineage, and obviously I had just touched upon a trigger. I want to tell you something my mother once said to me, said Porter with his nose about 12 inches from the tip of my own nose. A long time ago, my mother told me that the very worst thing you could possibly say about another human being is that they mean well. If you say that someone means well, you're saying that they're unreliable. You're saying that their word is useless. And then he went on to say a few other rather choice and derogatory things about those who mean well. Porter wasn't taking me to task for slandering our facilities chair. Instead, he was insisting that I recognize the fuller implications of what it means when someone is supposedly well-intended, when all they have to show for their good intention is the intention. Intentions without actions to back them up are useless, he assured me. If you say someone means well, you might as well just say that you've given up on them. Well, Porter's judgment was a bit harsh. I suspect, though, that he was expressing a standard to which he held himself accountable. I also imagine that his mother's exhortation was similar to what many of us here might have heard as we were growing up. I sure did. In my house, it was through the adage, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. A few of you heard that as well. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's difficult to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, as well it ought to be. There are just too many things we can't know about someone else's situation. It's pretty rare when what we know is sufficient to make us expert enough to cast judgment on somebody else. You may be familiar with some good adages on that lesson as well. The point is, though, that, that leaving the judgment of others aside, we might do well to discern for ourselves the difference between what we mean to do and what we actually do, and on the the larger scope of things, what we mean to do with our lives and what we're actually doing with them. What is it that we 
believe we are here breathing and walking and talking on this planet? What are, what are we here to do? What is it that you are here to do? I know that many of us are fond of saying that, and I know this because so many of you have said it to me, many of you are fond of saying that there is no grand purpose in life. I think for some of us such an admission would be paramount to conceding the existence of some kind of superpower God the Father figure. And I'm not altogether sure why those two concepts need to be reliant on each other. I think of them quite separately. But, but still, maybe there is truth. I don't know. Maybe there is truth that there is no grand purpose, which the universe holds in store for us individually. We can, and I'm sure we do, each have our own thoughts and beliefs about that. I have to confess, though, to being rather skeptical when anyone starts claiming ultimate knowledge on such things. I get very skeptical. Even still, I suspect that whatever grand purpose there might be or might not be, whether or not we admit it to ourselves or to others, there is purpose. We have purpose. And at the very least, that purpose is what we have ascribed to our own lives. We are capable of finding and making meaning in our lives, and so we do. To anyone who might be agnostic on that point, I would quote 19th century Unitarian Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said, a person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us, Emerson said, it behooves us to be careful of what we worship for what we are worshiping we are becoming. The underlying assumption and message, I think, is that we will worship what we value, and that which we worship is what gives our life direction, which gives our life purpose. Another of my ministerial colleagues, a theologian in her own right, recently retired Judith Walker Riggs, also responded to anyone who might be agnostic in the admission of faith or belief. Judith wrote, if we want to know what we believe, we need only look at what we do. What we believe can always be discerned from what we do. So if the road to hell is paved with good intentions, if meaning well is the worst thing we can possibly say about another person, if we will all have our gods which we worship and in whom we place our faith, how can we best align what we mean to do, what we say we want to do, with what we're actually doing? One of the things that is often said about Unitarian Universalism, even by many Unitarian Universalists ourselves, is that ours is a faith community where anyone can believe whatever they want. And I have to say, I believe that nothing is further from the truth than that. As Unitarian Universalists, we believe what we must believe. That's not because anyone is telling us what is true, what we must believe. It's because our own lives are telling us what is true. It is our lives that tell us what we must believe. We need only look at what we do to determine what it is that we believe. If we were free to believe whatever we wanted, that would be a pretty easy path to follow. Oh, I'll believe that. If we were free in our heart of hearts to believe what someone else insists is the canon truth, then that might be a fairly easy path to follow as well. 
But our freedom of conscience keeps us from being at liberty to embrace as true that which we find to be less than true or that which we find to be untrue. For our religious and spiritual integrity to be intact, we are obliged to believe that which we discover to be true through our experiences, through our intellect, through our reason, through our intuition, through whatever fountains we have found to be our sources of truth. We cannot deny the truth that we happen upon, however unconventional it might be, however uncomfortable it might make us, in the choices and in the actions that our truths compel us towards. Flannery O'Connor once quipped, know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. (laughs) So if we aren't finding truths that make us uncomfortable, if we aren't finding truths that make us odd, perhaps it's because we have stuck our heads in the sands of convention. Perhaps it's because we haven't been looking very hard for those truths. We are not only urged by life to own the truths we come upon, but we are urged to doggedly engage in our pursuit of the truth. There's an element in all of this that we would do well to consider, I think, at this point. Going back to my story from Fitchburg, there's a character that was the object of Porter Dickinson's frustration, the facilities chair, whom we might name Mr. Doolittle. Question is, Would Mr. Doolittle have recognized himself by that name? Or might he have more willingly responded to a label like Mr. Churchman? After all, he was the one who had taken on the responsibility of leadership in making sure that those ancient facilities were maintained as well as they possibly could be. It was, in truth, a huge responsibility. So we have Mr. Doolittle, a.k.a. Mr. Churchman, involved in two very different narratives. In one, he is a noble servant of the community who carries with him the onus of overseeing the property that the entire community depends upon. He takes this task seriously, but cautiously. He does not want to act in ways that are rash, which might jeopardize the very object of his responsibility. And in the other narrative, he is one who means well, but fails to act in ways that fulfill the responsibilities he has aspired to undertake. All the while through his deliberations or maybe through his procrastinations, the situation and need of his response continues to grow more severe. No matter his intentions, if he fails to act in ways that remediate the situation, the whole place could just come tumbling down around him and around the congregation. So again, we might ask, how can we best align what we say we want to do with what it is that we're actually doing? Neither Mr. Doolittle nor Mr. Churchman would hardly recognize themselves in the other one, in the other narrative. But I think that that is our task, to recognize ourselves in the other. If we're going to make good on our intentions, we need to recognize ourselves beyond the comfortable mythologies and the narratives that tell us that we're doing everything that we need to do. Beyond the comfortable mythologies and narratives that fail to challenge us, that fail to encourage us to be doers of the word and not just speakers. The mere possession of a vision is not the same thing as living it. And we might all nod our heads at this point and say, well, of course. Of course we know that, but knowing that and living it are very different things. It's hard to live. 
An example of what I'm talking about will, I hope, lead to your recognition of where these dynamics might come into your life and, and perhaps into your own narrative. And, and I would just, uh, as a little cheater, say uh, a number of you in this room are involved in the story that I'm ab about to share with you. Uh, use the story for the story, but use it as a metaphor for other stories as well, if you would. So many of you are aware that here in Montclair there are is some amount of considerable contention over issues in our school system. We don't need to go into those issues at this point in time. Perhaps it's enough to say that there are disagreement about various processes, past, present, and future, between various participants in the system, primarily the administration, including the school board, and teachers and parents. I've been involved in no fewer than three public conversations about these matters this past week. And there have been private conversations I've been a part of as well. So I've had a number of opportunities to talk with individuals representing the various perspectives at hand. From what I believe to be my objective and outside perspective, I can report on three conclusions to you. The first is that everyone engaged in these discussions, everyone, wants the school system to provide the very best educational opportunities possible for all the children of Montclair. Second, almost everyone in those conversations recognize the need for public discourse in order to adequately air all points of view. And third, again, almost everyone involved is totally self-assured of the correctness of their own perspective and refuses to hear what the other side is saying. Not everyone, almost everyone. So the folks in this local narrative tend to view themselves as the champions of education, bearing the responsibility for getting things fixed and fixed right. Most of them think, I believe, that their viewpoint is the only one that can possibly work. In the meantime, nothing is being done to repair the institution that is crumbling. Everyone means well, but nothing is being accomplished. And judgments about others, some very harsh judgments, are flying about freely. It sounds a bit like things up in Fitchburg a few years back. Sounds a lot like what we hear coming out of Washington, D.C. on a very regular basis. It sounds a lot like too much public and even private discourse that can be heard just about anywhere, far too often these days. It's not enough to mean well in regard to our relationships with others. If we are going to do well with and by others, we have to do the very hard work of personal change and transformation, of giving and taking. In order for our intentions to become our actions, we have to learn that being right has nothing to do with loving our neighbors as ourselves. That being right most often has little to do with accomplishing much of value for the greater good. I have a faith that the issues regarding the schools in Montclair will be resolved because self-righteousness will, will give way to the, the greater good and people will act in ways that will serve the system. Though more guardedly, I have that same hope for our officials in Washington, D.C., for those of you here, though, in your private and in your public doings, I have the strongest faith of all, that you will want the larger good so badly 
that you will do whatever is in your power to do, whatever is in your strength to do, whatever is in your wisdom to do in order to make it so. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, who you are speaks so loudly that I can't hear what you're saying. So then may we listen very carefully to one another. May we listen very carefully to our own lives and may we act caringly and decisively on the truths that we find and learn through that listening. Amen. The closing words by Dorothea Dix. In a world where there is so much to be done, I felt strongly impressed that there must be something for me to do. I feel strongly impressed that there is something for you to do, something for us to do. May we be about it.